Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley and Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley and Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. This episode features a conversation with Mike Lappin. Mike is an of counsel in Foley's Milwaukee office, focused on mergers and acquisitions and healthcare. In our discussion, Mike reflects on growing up in Fox Point, Wisconsin, attending Duke University, and the University of Wisconsin-Madison for law school. He also discusses how and why he decided to go to law school after spending a few years working on Capitol Hill. But this conversation is a little bit unique in that Mike has only been at Foley for six weeks. And I met him as a part of his integration process with the firm and asked if he would be on the show. I had to ask if he would be on the show because Mike joins Foley from Advocate Aurora Health, where most recently he was serving as Advocate Aurora's chief administrative officer. In the over a decade that Mike spent at Advocate, he served in numerous roles, including chief legal officer, corporate secretary, and chief integration officer. And in in my wisdom, I knew I had to get him on the show to talk about lessons from the C-suite. Although not only has Mike spent all of that time working for a large healthcare system, but for the 15 years prior to that, Mike was a law firm attorney at another large firm based out of the Milwaukee area. Mike's path is really unique in that after 15 years of being a lawyer and being a partner, he decided to pivot. He went in-house and he didn't have healthcare expertise, but he picked them up. So Mike reflects on that in our discussion and he shares so much wisdom. And I say this in every intro to this show, but this episode in particular, so much wisdom because of the perspective he brings from most senior roles at a large healthcare system. Mike shares advice on relationship building, on leadership, on diversity and inclusion. And overall, I think his career and his path, he really illustrates the importance of being open to new opportunities and new challenges. Because what you'll hear when he was at Advocate Aurora Health, basically everything was a new challenge for him, but each one he was more than willing to take on. I'm so happy that Mike was willing to jump on the podcast with me, even though he's just joining Foley. At the end of the show, I told him, you know, Mike, we are going to have to do an episode, a follow-up in maybe a year or so after you've settled in. But for now, I think the wisdom that he shares is clear and you'll really enjoy my discussion with Mike Lappin. Mike, welcome to the podcast. We're just going to jump in and have you give your professional introduction. Well, thank you for having me. I am Mike Lappin. I am an attorney. I like to say I have a major and an M&A, and uh, I've later in life developed a minor in healthcare and also a business executive. Uh, throughout my career, I've worked with businesses through periods of uh, growth and restructuring. I joined Foley uh, just a mere six weeks ago, and I work in the transactions group and the in the healthcare group. Uh, before joining Foley, I was with the Aurora Healthcare, which I joined in uh, 2009 as its uh, first general counsel, first in-house attorney. Uh, along the way, I expanded my duties and became the uh, chief administrative officer. In uh, 2018, we merged with uh, Advocate Health, 
in Chicago, and we had uh, two, two CEOs. Uh, they both stayed on as co-CEOs for a period of time, and they asked me to run the integration for the merger. So I've done that uh, the last uh, two years before coming to Foley. And before that, I started my career out here in Milwaukee down the road at uh, Quarles and Brady, where I worked for 16 years as a M&A lawyer. I ran, I, was, I should say, I was the chair of the business group for several years and was on the executive committee. Well, thank you so much for that summary. There's so much in there that I'm looking forward to unpacking because I think you're going to be episode 44 of the podcast. And up until now, except for maybe one other guest, we don't actually, we haven't had anyone on with that that perspective of both spending a long time in large law firms, but also spending you know a large a, lo- a long time, particularly in the senior leadership at a, a large organization. But before we can get there and talk about how it is and why it is that you can, you know, use that as your intro. Let's start sort of at the beginning. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? Well, I'm a Milwaukee boy and I grew up in the North Shore of Milwaukee. I, from listening to your podcast, I understand you did as well. I did. So, so where? What part of the North Shore? That was in Fox Point. Okay. Yep. And uh, I went to high school at Nicolet where you did, but, uh, I think I was there a few years earlier than you. We still had, we still had a, a smoking lounge back then, out where the buses came, and the drinking age was still 18. And we had a driver's license without pictures. I, I assume that's all foreign to you. <laughs> just a handful of years before myself, but I almost want to just pause there because, you know, given that Foley has such a large Milwaukee office, and I have had a number of podcasts, you were the first guest who also went to Nicolay High School, and I think that's remarkable. <laughs> Very great coincidence. Yes. By the way, did you know that Oprah Winfrey apparently spent, I think it was a year at Nicolet? I did not know that. Yeah. So I was on the yearbook when I was there and, you know, the school has all those old yearbooks and no, I don't remember what year it was. I mean, it was, I think it was one year of her being in high school and maybe even one semester, but she's in the yearbook. And so that's, I, I did not know that. There you go. Fun fact about Nicolet High School in Glendale, Wisconsin. But, anyway, but, but go on. Okay. So you went to, we went to the same high school. Tell me what it was like for you growing up in the North Shore. Like if, if I was to have found you in, say, middle school, what were your interests? What what were you doing? Like uh, many young boys, my interest was sports. My main sport was basketball, and it continues to be my favorite. But I played them all. And, you know, I was a good student, but it was, you know, doing schoolwork and, and playing sports. So basketball was the main one. Were there any others? Did you play? Was it solely the focus on basketball? Well, at, at a young age, I played them all. But you know, in high school, I only I, I was on the basketball team, but not on not on the on any of the other sports. And so I'm guessing that at that age, you didn't know that you wanted to grow up to be a lawyer. What it, did you have any inklings, or were there any favorite subjects at that age? Not really. I did better in math and science than I did in English. But yeah, lawyer. Thinking about. Law school and lawyer came way down the road. That was what I figured. But I love asking that question because as we get law students listening and even people thinking about law school, I just think it's affirming to hear that we're all just kind of figuring it out as we go along. So I like to ask. Well, well I think uh, throughout the, your com- our conversation, you will find that there's very little I, I did in my career where I said, I'm going down this path and going to do this. It's more uh, taking advantage of opportunities that, that came along. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, along the way. Well, here's a question that I won't get to ask, maybe at least for a while. Again, so while you were at Nicolay High School, <laughs> gearing up to go to college, what was that process like for you? Take me back to that time point in your life. 
So, uh, and this is the first path that I may have started down, and it lasted for a few years before I took a turn. And I think it was my junior year of high school, my dad had a friend who ran for governor uh, of the state of Wisconsin. Uh, and I started working on his campaign. And uh, it started as a little bit, and I got more and more into it. And it really became like a full-time job through my a lot of my junior year and into my senior year. And he ended up not doing well at all and, and lost, but I had the political bug. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, when I went to college, I went to a, a Duke University down in North Carolina. I was fortunate to go there, but before Duke became very popular and very hard to get in, uh, but studied um, public policy and economics and did an internship in D.C., uh, one year, uh, my junior year of college. And then after I graduated, I went back to DC and worked on Capitol Hill for two years. And that's that's what's kind of set me on the path to law school. Because everyone's a lawyer, probably, <laughs> when you're in well, DC. You know, what, what happened is, you know, you start at the at the bottom in the, in the congressman's office, and I had some issues uh, that were my responsibility that I didn't... Um, that weren't so important to him. Not not that they weren't important, but most most congressmen focus on their committees, uh, and so I had issues that weren't uh, on his committees. And over time, that changed, and I got involved in some of the committee work. Uh, ironically, one of the issues, and this was in the late '80s, was the leverage buyouts, and it was really the beginning of the private equity firms and doing leverage deals. And uh, a lot of people very concerned about what that might do to our financial institutions, what, what, what effect that might have on the economy. They didn't do anything, but you know, several years later, I was representing those private equity firms mm-hmm. in those deals. But in any case, as I got into those issues, I really started getting over my head. And after two years of working on Capitol Hill, I figured uh, it was time to go. It was a good time to go to, to law school, and I went back to the University of Wisconsin. Uh, fully intending to come back to uh, Washington. And I actually was in a joint degree program with the La Follette School there. So I have a master's in public administration with with my law degree. So what caused you to stay in the state? And I th- actually, let me break that up a little bit. Do you have any things that you remember about law school as an experience? Did you Did you enjoy it or does anything stand out to you? Other than the pub on State Street where we spent uh, <laughs> quite a bit of time, no, you know, and I think it was different for me having worked for a, a couple of years than, say, going straight on from uh, graduating. And uh, you treat it more as a job and you come in and you get your work done. Um, you're used to getting up early and, and you know, working all day. So uh, that's kind of how I how I approached it. Yep, that makes sense. And it's hard because there's so many parts of your professional path that I want to get to. I don't want to give that part of your life short shrift, but I, I kind of just wanted to zoom past it. But I was like, hold on, yeah. let's pause. Yeah. Let me ask, what was it that then kept you in Wisconsin? I know you've mentioned joining Quarles and Brady, but tell me just a, a, a little bit about that. So uh, a couple things happened. One is, like I said, I, I fully intended to go back to Washington, but the more I was away from it, the less I missed it. And there is in Washington, they call the call it the inside the beltway mentality. And you think that you're the center of the world and everyone's watching everything you're doing. And you're when you get out of it, you realize there's there's a whole world out there of a lot of really cool things going on. And so 
uh, I missed, I, I didn't, I didn't really miss it. And, and then, um, uh, Quarles recruited me after my first year to, to be a summer associate there. And while I had no intention of joining a big firm, I, I kind of liked it. Uh, I liked the people, I liked the work and, uh, you know, they, they paid a lot more than the $15,000 I was making on uh, Capitol Hill. So I, I figured uh, I could I could give this a try. That's tremendous perspective. And then did you know that your focus would be transactional for that corporate M&A? Or how did you decide on that? Again, uh, kind of by chance. I knew much more about what I did not want to do than, than I what I did want to do. Um, I did not want to litigate. There were many other specialties I didn't really have an interest in, so I, I picked the business group. Uh, I came from a family business. My dad ran, those of you in Milwaukee, Lapin Electric. So that was in our family for a long time, so that made some sense to me. And uh, I joined, and I happened to have a few people that got me to help them on some deals, and, and I really liked it. I really liked that work for a number of reasons. First of all, it, it wasn't so legal. Mm. I didn't have to spend... Uh, you know, a lot of time in the library back when we used to have libraries. Yep. I liked the action. I like you're you're involved in you know buying and selling businesses and investing in businesses are are significant events. Whether you're a, a big global enterprise or a small family business, they're they're big events. They're big parts of businesses' growth plans. And you know, for family businesses, it's a lot of what your identity is. And being involved in transactions is a very significant events for them. And it's great to be part of that. Uh, I like the challenge of bringing people together. It's much easier to, to say no than it is to get to yes. And, and you know, I like that challenge. Um, and I like the teamwork. It's, you know, deals uh, have a lot of issues and a lot of uh, people need to be involved in, in working on teams and, and bringing the teams together to, to drive good results. Um, I liked all of that. You know, Mike, I think if I would have gotten that explanation from you when I was deciding on what my practice area was going to be, I may have given a corporate path a more serious <laughs> consideration. I thought that that was a wonderful way way to explain it. And I thought it was particularly you know, interesting and funny where you mentioned that it didn't feel as legal because and we say this a lot on the podcast. And I do think legal education has changed, you know, since since I went and probably, you know, probably since you went. But ultimately, law school is very litigation focused. And so you don't necessarily get a flavor for what a more transactional practice is going going to be like. And so I thought it was funny when you mentioned that because you know I was we, for you it was the the library, but now it's like you're going to have to know how to do legal research and use Westlaw and Lexis. And I think there's a lot of uh, deal lawyers that are like, but will I? <laughs> will <Yes>. I really? <laughs> I did a little bit, but if I had to do it today, we'd be in trouble. Exactly. Well, I don't know if you have any general reflections on the first. I mean essentially decade and a half of, of your career where you were at at a law firm, um, you know, in terms of adjusting to that, you know, the learning curve, you made made partner while you were there. So I want to pause for that, but I can already tell a lot of what we're going to talk about, I think, is the time you spent at, at Advocate and the perspective you have because of the roles you had there. I enjoyed my time at Quarles personally and professionally. Like I said, I like the people. I worked with, I had great mentors who taught me a lot. I had some who took my hand and helped me every step of the way. And I had some who were very, provided much less oversight and kind of let me figure things out. Uh, one of them I was fortunate enough to work with was uh, Pat Ryan, who was the chair of the firm. 
and Pat was known as the, the top M&A lawyer at Quarles, both in the firm and outside the firm. And I was very fortunate to spend a lot of time with him. And I learned from him, not just doing deals, but managing a firm, managing people, how to, how to deal with people. So that was, uh, you know, invaluable to me. Uh, I'll tell you a funny story and what I've learned from him. And, and one of the things I learned is uh, I was in his office one day. I had screwed something up on a deal and I was explaining it to him. And he had stood up from behind his desk and hitched his pants. And he had that big partner office and walked to the other side and closed the door and came back and was shaking his hand at me. And he just said something like, Mike, you need to think through things before you start making decisions on deals. And I don't remember at all what the issue was, but I'm very good at thinking through things now before I make decisions. So I will never forget that. I think that that's sorry, that epitomizes, I think, one of the most important things to learn as an associate or as a junior lawyer is you will make mistakes. You will. But you really have to make sure you only make that particular mistake one time. (laughs) And depending on who highlights the mistake to you, chances are you will ensure that you never make that mistake again. And that is also why a lot of, I think, more senior lawyers can seem very paranoid to new attorneys, asking the same question many times, checking certain things eight times. And I guarantee you it's because they messed something related to that up when they were probably a little junior. (laughs) Yeah. You know what I will say to that too, though, is I agree. I mean, you learn much more making a mistake than than not. And, And I certainly have my share of them. But I think it's also a testament to leadership. And one of the things I've learned is how do you deal with people when they've made a mistake? And do you use it as a learning experience or do you use it as something more draconian? And I think that, you know, Pat was very good, as with everyone else at, at Quarles was, was very good about that. But I can, you, you mentioned Aurora, so let me let me go on with Quarles and, and talk about my path there. Because it, it was one time that I, I think I, I was on a path and again, I deviated from that. Not long after I became partner, I I was asked to become the chair of the uh, business law group at Quarles, and I was the chair for several years. And and a few years after that, I was elected to the executive committee. And uh, I thought that was my path. I was getting more and more involved in firm management. I enjoyed that. And and I thought that was my path. And then in, uh, I think it was 2007, we hired a man by the name of Steve Bablich. Uh, and Steve is, is one of the most interesting careers of anyone I've ever met. He was a prosecutor. He was a president of a law firm. He was a secretary of the Department of Corrections. Uh, he was the general counsel and CEO of Blue Cross of Wisconsin. And, and he was also the secretary of the Department of Administration, most recently when, when we hired him at Quarles. And he was hired to help us revitalize our, our health law practice. And looking at at the person with this background, I said, I got to get to know him. And I did. And, and he became and, and continues, to, continues to be a very good friend of mine and, and, and a mentor. And working on developing our health law practice, he, he got to know Nick Turkle, who was a new CEO at, uh, at Aurora. And they became very close, so much so that uh, after, I think, asking two or three times, Steve agreed to join him at uh, at Aurora. And one of Steve's assignments was to start a legal department. As I said at the beginning, Aurora had no legal department, despite its size, despite its uh, highly regulated business. And uh, Steve came to me and uh, asked me to be to, to join him as a general counsel. And uh, at the time, 
my kids were in middle school and elementary school and we weren't leaving Wisconsin, we weren't leaving Milwaukee. Uh, so I figured this was the probably the best opportunity I'd ever have to join uh, one of Milwaukee's larger businesses in-house. Uh, so I took advantage of that. And everything was great, except that I knew nothing about health law. Mm-hmm. I was a M&A lawyer, and I, I really knew uh, nothing. It's not an exaggeration. You know, wait, and I want to pause you right here, because I think there's a lot more you're going to tell us. But I just have to pause for one moment, partly for dramatic effect, because that is such a neat opportunity. And you said so many things there about, you know, I thought my path was was X, but obviously, you know, the, the roads diverged and you took a different path. But to have the opportunity to be, I think, as you said, the first, was it the first general counsel while they're building a legal department for what was already, I'm, I'm assuming, a relatively large organization and is even bigger, even, you know, significantly bigger, bigger today. That is just a really interesting opportunity, but I bet it was daunting. As you just said, you were an M&A lawyer, but you didn't really know healthcare. So how did you, how did you close that gap? How did you learn? <laughs> so a, a couple things. Steve told me when I joined, he said, you're probably going to go through your first six months saying, why did I do this? And he was right, except it was probably only three months. I think you, first of all, I learned, uh, I learned healthcare. Uh, I had some very good teachers, uh, chief compliance officer, two chief compliance officers were excellent healthcare lawyers. Uh, I, I handled uh, or I hired a very good healthcare lawyer to take care of all of uh, the health, uh, the healthcare side of the business. So, uh, and I learned and when I first started our chief compliance officer, uh, it started as a joke, but it was serious as every, every day I'd walk in and she had a new acronym for me to, to learn. So, I picked that up. Part of part of why I think I did well, though, are, are a couple of things. My, I think my law firm background, I knew how to manage outside counsel. Uh, I knew what, you know, a lot of that was getting our grips around our outside counsel relationships. So I was well-versed in that. And we're, as lawyers, are trained to be problem solvers and strategists. And, you know, I, I will never know, even after being there, 11, 12 years, I'll never know healthcare like the people who are there and have done this for their career, but I can help them solve their problems and I can help them come to solutions with difficult issues they're having. And that's that's how I built my credibility. And whether it was a health law issue or something else, uh, that's, you know, that's the value that I brought. And interestingly, you know, we, we think of health systems as health law, as lawyers, we think about health law, but they're big businesses and they got HR issues and litigation issues and deals and everything else that every other business has. And I would say my conversations with the CEO, 90% of our discussions were not about health law. They were about other significant matters, whether it was a deal or the board or growth or innovation. It was all these other things that, that he was looking for my, for my help on. Yeah. And I think I actually want to just hear more about that because so, you know, I practiced for a number of years, but I never practiced in-house. I did for a point as a legal recruiter, help lawyers find jobs. Some of those were in-house. So I made it a point to learn as much as I could about that in-house experience and perspective, because I have been told that law firm lawyers will, you know, they look at things differently than once you're you're in-house. And so I wonder if you do have any reflections on things you learned 
as you moved from a firm to in-house, but just things that you think could assist, whether it be Foley lawyers or other lawyers when it comes to working with in-house counsel, you know, things that maybe annoyed you that your outside lawyers would do. And then I also do want to talk about diversity after this, because I know that was another thing you really focused on while you were at Advocate. But what would you say to that law firm attorney that you think they should they could do that would make them more easily able to work with their uh, their clients that are in-house? You know, I think the biggest, the overriding thing that I think in the uh, law firm lawyers miss, and, and I put myself in that boat because I really missed, missed it myself when I was practicing, is it's all about relationships. And I thought I had great relationship with my clients. I love my clients. I was their go-to person. and But when I went in-house, I was like, oh my God, was I missing the boat? There is so much, you just think about, in the law firm, we, we think about transactions. And, and by that, I mean not M&A transactions. So we think about our next matter. Where's my next bill? Where's my, where's my next billable hour coming from? Where's my next matter coming from that I can bill for? And we don't think about relationships. And there's, think about all the work that happens before you get the call or you get that email that says, I need your help on this matter. And I was kind of blind to that. Uh, and I and when I went in house and I, you know, you look through all of the work that an executive team does, for example, to make a decision to do a deal, and and it's so hard to develop that great relationship when you don't have that familiarity. Whether it's about the industry and who the competitors are, what the business's strategic plan is, what is the jargon, who are the other law firms that that the business uses? How are decisions made? What's the CEO style? And it's not just a relationship with the general counsel. It's a relationship with with all the lawyers. And I think the lawyers at Foley and other firms are great advisors, but I think they could be that much better with much deeper relationships. And I get questions since I've been here like, you know, do I send newsletters or do I not send newsletters? Do we have social events? Do we not have social events? And that, to me, is just a sign that you don't know your client. If you knew your client, you would know the answer to those questions. And if you want to know the client, don't ask me. Ask your client. You know, I, you know, you, I could tell you what I thought when I was general counsel, but everyone's going to be different. And I think if you put on the the, the great thing is about that is that we all know relationships. We've all had good relationships. We've all had bad relationships. Uh, And we know what makes a good relationship. It's familiarity and honesty and good communication and trust and having a being win-win and having your back. And if you invest in that relationship, the billable hours will come. The next matter will come because you're trusted. I look for people and, and, and surprisingly, I had very few people who really stepped up to this for me, but people who really had my back, people who were thinking of me, people who were helping me. And there are a lot of good lawyers out there. It's hard to differentiate yourself on the substance, but you can on the relationships. And, and I would, and it's not just, you know, old partners like me who do it. It's, you know, the, the youngest associates can do it because you have contemporaries and in-house and and you're part of the team and it really is is a team. One of the reasons I met Foley and, and one of the people who was my go-to person was Jay Rothman. And, and over the course of time, I had two or three really big issues that I needed someone I could just trust to work through with them. And Jay was, Jay was great and uh, really, really helped us through a, a couple of difficult matters. 
Well, and so for the listeners who don't know, Jay Rothman is Foley and Lardner's CEO and a, a longtime corporate partner at the firm. He's he's also episode seven of the podcast, if I'm right. So if someone would like to hear more from Jay, listen to that. But And a farmer. And, and a farmer, which I got him to talk about on the yes. podcast. All the more reason to listen. But Mike, everything you said there, I think there's so much wisdom in that. I recently was talking to law students about building professional relationships. And for the law students, this was more a talk about building relationships to help you find a job. And at one point I mentioned, by the way, these are the same skills you're going to need, you know, assuming you get that job. And if you're a law firm attorney and you want to one day develop business, but I think you really added a lot of nuance to what it means to really know a client. I think it also speaks to why being a lawyer is a practice, but also why it's difficult to be a lawyer because there are all these layers. There is that subject matter expertise. But, you know, for those attorneys who do want to have client relationships, everything you just said is so important. And I don't know that we always hear it described that way. So I just, I really thank you for that. Yeah. And, and don't get me wrong. The expertise is important, but expertise is what gets you in the door. Knowing uh, what I need and when I need it and what pressures I'm under and things like that are, are what can differentiate you. Now, this may be maybe sort of a dumb question, but how would someone discover that? Could they could they ask you, or is it the years of building a relationship and they've discerned when you're under pressure? But what were the most effective ways that you found attorneys were able to figure that out? You know, I go back to what I said before, which is it's about, think about all the relationships you have. It's not like you met someone for lunch and you became best friends. It's getting to know someone over a period of time, and it's asking questions and spending time together and, and learning about each other. And and I think if you put it in that context of uh, of all the other relationships that you've had, you will you will be fine. And, and that's why I think it's not that difficult. But but ask questions. You know, what what I see lawyers do a lot is guess, or if they don't guess, then they hesitate and don't do it. And for most lawyers who would reaching out to me if, if they could help me with something and I, I'm willing to listen anything that can make my life easier I'm, I'm willing I'm willing to listen but it all goes back to you know the basics of just developing a relationship so it's not rocket science uh, think about your friends think about your family and the relationships you have there and that's a great start yeah I appreciate you for reiterating that and it's true a lot of there's a lot of things that in life that conceptually are simple, but doesn't necessarily mean they're easy. And I think a lot of the relationship building is also time. Like you said, this stuff doesn't happen overnight. But, you know, as I meet more seasoned lawyers, they get this. But I do often speak to lawyers that are, well, I don't know, in that like five to 10 year range within their career. And some of this, and it's not, and it's not fully, it's, you know, within the industry, because I'm connected to and I've worked with a lot of lawyers in various capacities over the years. And some of this, their common sense around it, they'll, they'll forget about. You know, they might be great yeah. friends with people, but they sort of forget that's the same mentality with client relationships. Yes, there's a, a, lot of, a lot of thinking that there's like this magical line or magical thing I can say to someone and, and they'll become a client. And yes, I just ask you, can I have your business? And you're of like, Of course yes. it doesn't. You know, I say it, it, it kind of works like that magical line to get someone to go on a date with you. It doesn't usually work that way. Right. If they just ask the right way, I'm sure yeah. you can send me a lot of your legal spend. But somewhat in that same vein, and something you talked about was that working with outside counsel. And, you know, we've previous, previously discussed how 
you know, you definitely had an emphasis on diversity and inclusion. And so I try not to always wear my diversity director hat while on this podcast, but I'm going to put that hat back on right now because I would love to hear your your thoughts on that um, and why that was a priority to you. I'm happy to talk about diversity and inclusion, and I think we should talk about it these days. When I joined Aurora, uh, we did not have a, a DNI program, and I understand that before I joined, they had one and it really was bad. And so people were hesitant to, to do it again. But our CEO, uh, Nick Turkle, knew uh, he had to do it and, and asked a few of us to uh, take the lead in, in uh, developing a program. And, and I've always been a big advocate of uh, DNI. I think it's the right thing to do. And I think it's, I think it's good for business. And we developed, I think, a pretty effective program. Uh, as you would expect, it was partly focused on our workforce and recruiting and turnover, but we also took a very hard look at disparities of care where there may be certain demographic groups that have much more prevalence of a certain condition than others and trying to figure out why that may be. And uh, we looked at our supply chain too. And, you know, we were, and in the communities we serve, we're, we're usually one of the bigger businesses and, and we should be doing our share of keeping our purchases local and uh, fostering a woman and, and minority-owned businesses. The thing, and we also had a, a very, uh, what I thought is a very effective uh, training program for our executive team. And there's one piece of that uh, that I, I wanted to mention. When we get into D&I, uh, a lot of the times that focus is on the D. It's on diversity, and we, and we forget about inclusion. And when we talked about inclusion and, and, and did some training on inclusion, it really made me a better leader. And one of the mistakes I made is you, you get the team together and you think everyone's just ready to go and everyone is focused. And it could be that someone is, they're not there because, you know, a kid is having trouble in school or a parent is um, sick and in the hospital. Or it could be that someone is the only woman in the room or the only person of color in the room. And it could be that person is thinking, why am I here? What do I do to fit in? I don't want to, I want to be sure I don't say something stupid. And they're thinking everything except how can I be the best, bring my best to, to this team every day. And that's what, to me, that's what inclusion is, is getting to know your people well enough and setting the environment that they can bring their full self, their best self, uh, and their best ideas uh, to work every day to help to help the team today, and I fear that when we just focus on diversity, we're never going to get to where we want because there's so much more that needs to be done. Um, let me give you a quick, um, maybe funny example. When I was uh, chief administrative officer, shortly after I, I took that position, I we had to make a change at the head of our uh, human resources department, and the person who was leading it left, and I. Uh, decided to give the job to the woman who was the number two in the department. And she was very smart. She's very well qualified, uh, very respected around the system. But I could tell she was very concerned about saying things that would upset me and more importantly, our our CEO. And she was very concerned about, and, and so she tended to tell us things that we wanted to hear. So after a couple months of of working together, I was talking to her about an idea that I had for restructuring uh, one of the other departments I had. And, and she turned to me and said, you know, Mike, you can you can do that if you want, but that's a really stupid idea. And that to me was one of my highlights of my career as a leader because 
after a couple months, I finally got to the point where she could tell me what she really thinks. And that's what I really needed. I know what I think. I really needed her best work. And I knew from that point on, I would, I would get it. And she actually went on to be a great leader. She really transformed the department into what I thought was a very good, uh, effective department. So, and so like I said, I, th- I think that was the underpinning of a very effective DNI program that w- that we had. Well, I I love that you've said so many things that are music music to my ears. Given what you know, my role is at at Foley and Lardner, and additionally, I I really appreciate and want to acknowledge you tying diversity and inclusion to leadership. I often talk in terms terms of leadership as well, because you know, at the end of the day, what we're talking about is people, and that includes one's capacity to lead and to resonate with with all people. And so it's, it's wonderful hearing about, you know, things you did and how you endeavored to do just that, because I think too often diversity is put in this silo of somehow this separate initiative that's separate from the business that we're in and separate from, from all of the people. And, and it's important that we integrate it with everything else. I think that's right. I think it's like, okay, we're now we're going to talk about DNI and then we talk about it and then we move on to the, to the rest of the business and we won't uh, succeed until it becomes part of what we do every day. It becomes a natural part of that. And like I said, I think it is good for business. It is, uh, and, and there's the science behind it. This is, you know, effective, uh, diverse teams make better decisions than mm-hmm. teams that, that aren't diverse. There's one other piece of DNI that I'd like to I'd like to bring up if it may be helpful for the people listening. Uh, after the George Floyd incident, one of the things we did at Advocate Aurora was have focus groups with about 20, 25 people. And they were all from people around the system. So, you know, very, very wide, wide range of participants in terms of age and experience and and levels and and all of that. And I participated in that. And and one of the things uh, that came out, probably the most important thing for me that came out of that is that there are a lot of people who are really on board and really want to do what they think is right. And, but they are very scared to speak up and they're scared of saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing. And they're going to be called out forever on that. And again, I think it comes back to a question of leadership. Sometimes, obviously, sometimes there are things that are said and done that have to be called out because they are, they are that bad, but it would be, I think much more effective if we could create an environment where someone says something and the reaction is more, I trust you didn't mean it when you said, but when you said that, this is how I feel. Mm-hmm. Again, it's it's what we talked much earlier on about mistakes. I mean, people make mistakes. A lot of them are well-intended and, and that's what you learn from. And again, I feel if there are so many people who are really sitting on the sidelines on this journey, we won't get to where we want to be in, until we engage them. Yeah, you've just seen me nodding a lot. So when I do various diversity and inclusion workshops or trainings, depending on the topic, what you just said is something I'll raise. And, and it can be difficult, particularly if someone's accustomed to, you know, people not being so nice to them, but you really have to work to assume positive intent with everyone. And I think, and it's not just in the DNI context, but this is in a life context. I think it's too easy in a busy day whatever it is someone says or does to just jump to the worst case scenario of you must have meant this because you thought, and there's something to be said for pausing a beat. You know, ideally you're able to pause between stimulus and response, you know, so you can actually respond instead of react and saying, I don't think you meant it this way. 
but here's how it felt. Here's how it impacted me. Can we talk about that? And it's it's actually, it's a tremendous skill to have. It's really hard to do, but it's a skill that ultimately I think we all need to work to cultivate. I agree. And again, I think it, it comes back to leadership because it it is the environment, it is the culture that uh, the leader sets. And if they if they take the time to uh, set that environment, you will you will get the results. And if you don't, you know, you, yes. be careful. Well, and we get into some. I'm a, I'm a huge fan. I've said this before on the podcast. I'm a huge fan of Brene Brown, but she talks a lot about that connection between leadership and vulnerability, and really creating a space where people feel feel comfortable. Back to what you're saying about being the, their authentic selves, but saying hard things, engaging in those conversations. We could talk for a really long time about that, but but we won't because we have a little more time together, but our time's drawing to a close. And there's a couple more things I wanted to ask you about. So as I do for all these podcasts, of course, you know I have you pulled up on LinkedIn. And when I look in particular at your trajectory with an Aurora, it strikes me as you are not somebody who says no to a challenge, or who passes on the opportunity to do something new. So just, for example, I can see how you joined, as I think you mentioned, their first chief chief legal officer. You're also corporate secretary, chief integration officer, chief administrative officer. Tell me more about that. And and why was it that you were willing, when presented with these opportunities, to change hats, to learn something new? And I don't know if you have any reflections overall about your path at Aurora, but I feel like there's more to hear about there. Maybe it's just that I get bored easily. <laughs> <laughs> well, like time to move Mike around to get no. Just no. You know, again, it, it really goes back to where I started. Is that I really never had a set a path in my for my career, saying this is what I this is what I, I want to do. I never said I wanted to be a lawyer, but I'm glad I'm glad that I was. It provides. I talked about before the skills of being a strategist, the skills of being a problem solver, uh, have really helped me. Uh, I think we're very good at being objective and looking at situations where there's risk and where there's opportunity, and and weighing those and 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 making good decisions based on that. Uh, I think we're good at looking at situations dispassionately, and those are all things that are really helpful in a business. Uh, CEOs, in particular, really really rely on people who, who can do that well. And so, yes, I, you know, I gained credibility through lawyer skills applied in different situations, and I took advantage of them. And I loved my chief administrative officer role and overseeing uh, an HR department. I, I was overseeing the IT department, and you know, I'm happy when I can turn my computer on in the morning. But, you know, I, and being comfortable not being the smartest person and being willing to learn uh, and strategize uh, and really, you know, set the direction. You know, at the end, it, it's uh, making a difference and really helping the organization. And I will say one one thing about being in healthcare is is it's really a purpose driven business, and people are there are committed to their purpose. That's why they're there. Uh, and we talk about it. We talked about it all the time. It really guided decision making and and strategic planning. And it's not like a law firm doesn't have a purpose. We have a good purpose of helping our clients achieve their business goals, but we don't talk about it a lot. And you know, and, that, and that's something we should we should do more. It's it's a unifier, and it helps you know helps direction on, on what we do. And I think if you were to think, you going back to our conversation on relationships, I think you would think more about relationships if you thought of, if you had that purpose in in mind. Well, and I think from what you're saying also, and this is you know, and I pick on law firms a fair amount, but it, it is different in terms of 
how you'll see in corporations or other organizations talk a lot about about their values or or their their purpose. And I know at Foley we actually do talk a lot about our firm values, but I do think that can be different perspective for someone who's maybe only been in a law firm when they join an organization, you know, like you said, such as Aurora that talks a lot about how purpose driven they are. And there's probably likely even some, you know, sort of like moral underpinnings under that. And it's just, I think, a really interesting thing to reflect on. But as our time does wind down, there's a couple other things I wanted to ask you about. And one, so you you have mentioned sort of what the connection was that brought you from advocate to Foley and Lardner. And we can't get off the podcast without me asking about your practice at Foley. I know you're six weeks in, you've highlighted, you know, what it, what it is you do, but I'd love to hear even more about it because I have had episodes of the show where I've forgotten to ask about the person's practice. And I just don't want to do that again. <laughs> but so tell me about the practice that you'd like to focus on while while you're at while you're at Foley. There's there's a few different things and, and obviously I'm still kind of ramping up. Number one is continue to do work for Advocate Aurora. You know, I, I they're they're my friends. I've worked very closely with them. I know the organization well. Uh, Foley is probably their main outside counsel and I think there's more we can do breath and, and deeper with them. And, and that is one of my big areas of focus. The other two would be with the uh, healthcare practice. And uh, I think it's probably not what it was many years ago in Milwaukee, at least. And uh, I mentioned Marine and Matt, who recently joined the firm and uh, hoping to revitalize that uh, in Milwaukee. And again, I'm still an M&A lawyer at, at heart. And uh, I'm, I'm looked forward to uh, to getting back into the deals. I told you why why I love doing deals, and uh, I'd like to get back in that. But I'd also like to um, help the firm do the things that we were talking about before. And and uh, if you have a client first as is one of the values that we've talked about, how do we really make that come to life? There's a lot of really good firms out there, and a lot of really good lawyers out there, and it's it's hard to differentiate sometimes, but how do we differentiate ourselves? And I think that that is one of the leverage points we can have that we can really, you know, who's going to break out of the mold? I think the, and that's one of the reasons I'm here with the national and global platform you have and with the, the great lawyers that we have, that I think there's a great opportunity here for really to set a new path for what, what a law firm could be. And as you uh, have surmised. I, I've uh, in the self-assessments I've taken, I've scored pretty high on on change and doing things differently, and I'd like to keep doing that. Well, that is fantastic. That's certainly something that I like to think I score high on as well, so that I can actually help make progress with diversity inclusion at the firm and in the broader legal industry. But also, I just have to to thank you for being on the show in general, given that you you know just so recently joined the firm, and it can be a lot to be like, hey, you want to be on a podcast, but you, I think, have exceeded. There's an associate I had on who'd only been at the firm for maybe three or four weeks, and I had and I had him on. So this is not unprecedented. But my goal with this show is really to show such a wide variety of you know paths and backgrounds within the law. And so I, I had to get you on, given the perspective you bring. But as we do wrap um, or, or begin to wind to a close, two questions for you. One: Is there anything else you'd like to share that you haven't had an opportunity to talk about? And then after that, what's your advice to lawyers? What advice would you give somebody who's contemplating a legal career or perhaps a junior lawyer navigating their career? Uh, the answer to your first question is I don't think so. The answer to your second question, I think I've covered over the course of our chat. But let me um, 
let me conclude with with three things. You know, I listened to your, I think it was a recent discussion with Tana Calloway, which was great, by the way. And she made a reference to Hamilton and uh, being in the room where it happened. If I could give a, a different Hamilton reference would be, don't throw away your shot. And I think, uh, as you've heard me talk about, you know, we we do a lot of work as lawyers, a lot of hard work, a lot of good work. Uh, we should be developing networks. As you do that, you know, opportunities will come your way. Some of the opportunities you have to make yourself, but when the opportunities come up, take advantage of them. I've mentored a lot of people along the way, and I've told all of them, uh, don't be an observer on your own career because you're not going to end up where you want to be. So take advantage of the opportunities. Secondly, I would reiterate what I talked about with relationships. It's easy to get caught up in the billable hours. It's easy to get caught up in billings and collections. But take the time. It doesn't have to be a lot of time, but it needs to be consistent time developing those relationships and looking for the long term. And then finally, be a learner. Have mentors. uh, Learn from people. I've been very fortunate to have a lot of people who've helped, helped me along the way. Things in the law and things in business are changing very rapidly these days. So whatever was the common knowledge today isn't tomorrow. So constantly be uh, just be a learner, be willing to learn new things and, and do new things and get out of your comfort zone and, and, and take a chance. I think you'll be uh, more satisfied and, and more successful. That is absolutely wonderful advice. For anyone who's curious, that episode you mentioned with Tonic Calloway is episode 38. I am personally very gratified to have had two people specifically mention Hamilton the musical because I was a bit of a Hamilton super fan <laughs> for a while there. Uh, and with that, Mike, I'll just ask if someone wants to reach out as questions for you, is it okay if they find you on Foley's website and send you an email? Of course. Please reach out. I am always happy to talk to people about careers, about clients, about the law, uh, about basketball, anything else, please reach out. Mike, thank you so much for being on the show. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Mike Lappin. I'm here with an update on Mike, which is that as of July, 2022, Mike left Foley for a role as the chief legal and strategy officer of Network Health in Wisconsin. We miss Mike, but we will always consider him to be a friend of the firm and wish him nothing but the best on all of his future endeavors. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley and Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner, LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice. 